0: Uh, thank you very much for all, uh, for participating in today's lunch program. My name is Dan Albrick with Leopardo Construction. My co-chairs Jeanette Outlaw with OFS Brands and Howard Wender, Strata Real Estate Services. Uh, we've had uh, great successes uh, over the, in 2010 um, with a, a lot of different uh, programs, the Suburban Outreach, as well as our Wisconsin friends, participation from folks all across the, uh, across the Midwest here, groups in uh, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Iowa all flocked to our lunch programs. So, this was uh, it was a great year for us, and we've got a lot in store for uh, for uh, 2011. Today's program, as I always say, is being podcast. Um, we also have a very extensive library that we've uh, amassed over the years. So, please check out the website. I think right now we have close to 50 different presentations from the last oh four or five years, as a matter of fact. So, a great wealth of knowledge. Check it out take a listen to some of the forecasts from the past and see how accurate the guys are. Uh, this year we have a lot in store, uh, great programs as I would mentioned, building repositioning program, operating healthcare real estate, made in the USA program, uh, focusing on manufacturing to name a few, and we encourage your suggestions as well. At the end of every program we pass out the survey sheets and encourage you to write in some topics that you think, and that's how we tailor our programs. So we still have uh, we've got a lot of ideas for the, for the new year and we encourage uh, your suggestions. So today's program, we welcome back our friends from the Federal Reserve. We have Bill Strauss and Rick Mattoon. Hopefully they can help us uh, shed some light on what's in store for 2011. Bill Strauss is a senior economist and economic advisor in the Economic Research Department at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, which he joined in 1982. His chief responsibilities include analyzing the current performance of both the Midwest economy and the manufacturing sector for use in monetary policy. He produces the monthly Chicago Fed Midwest Manufacturing Index and organiz- organizes the bank's economic outlook symposium and automotive outlook symposium. In addition, he conducts several economic workshops and industrial roundtables round throughout the year. Strauss has taught in an adjunct fa- uh, faculty member at Loyola University Chicago and Webster University in Chicago. He currently teaches at DePaul University, Kelstadt, Graduate School of Business and the University of Chicago Graham School of General Studies. Rick Mattoon is senior economist sorry Rick Mattoon is senior economist and economic advisor in the economic Research Department of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Mattoon's primary research focuses on issues that f- faces the Midwest regional economy, his analysis of electricity restructuring and energy issues, Higher education policy, regional economic development, and state and local government finance has appeared in numerous publications. Mattoon also serves as a lecturer at the Kellogg School of Manage- Management at Northwestern University. Mattoon b- began his career at the Chicago Fed in 1990. In 97, he left the bank to serve as a policy advisor for uh, economic development, energy and telecommunications to the governor of, of Washington. He later served as director of policy and legislation for the Washington Utilities and Transportation Com- Commission He returned to the bank in 2001. Let's give a round of applause for our speakers.
1: All right, good afternoon, everybody. Um, So here to talk about uh, how the economy has been progressing since the Great Recession that we went through. Uh, The Great Recession uh, was a period that lasted between January of 2008 through June of 2009. Um, Then uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research, made the announcement that uh, the recession ended at that point in time. Now, oftentimes people will say, well, you know, how could you say we're out of a recession when you have uh, unemployment rates that are still north of 9%, uh, tremendous slack in the economy. Uh, So when we talk about a recession, we're talking about an actual decline in economic activity. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that things are still going lower Uh, with regard to the total economy's performance. In fact, looking at our best measurement of the overall economy's performance, the growth rate of real GDP, it has been rising since the third quarter of 2009. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, again, but we can talk about how it feels with regard to going through what we've gone through at this point. Um, The growth, though, has come in at about half of what would typically occur during... Uh, the recovery period following a deep recession like we went through. Part of the reason for that restraint is the fact that this recession uh, was associated with a financial crisis. And what we have seen when we look at the 1930s or Japan, which uh, outside of the United States had a financial crisis, uh, you know, we see that recovery periods tend to be very, very restrained. I think there's an underappreciation of how important the financial sector is in fostering growth for an economy. But we have been growing; growth rates uh, have come in at the last five quarters, averaging around 3%. In the most recent quarter, in fact, uh, the third quarter, on a year-over-year basis, growth is up at 3.2%. Now, this is above-trend growth for the U.S. economy, which we think of as around two and a half to two and three-quarter percent. But it doesn't feel all that good. Well, in part, the reason for that is that over 60% of the growth since the recovery period began is attributable to the change in inventories, the, the increase in the amount of inventories that we are stocking in the United States. During the recession, things were cut back quite severely. The replenishment has really been a key driver. But of but of course, inventories are goods that are produced but, uh, but are not sold. They're put on the shelf for production or for sale into the future. So these inventories, you know, aren't really reflecting what final demand is looking like. We do have a statistic that removes this sector. And by the way, I should highlight that the change of inventories, if you look at it as a share of GDP, it's less than a, well less than 1% of GDP. So we have truly a story over the past five quarters of the tail wagging the dog. This tiny piece of our economy has really explained uh, well over half of the growth over the past year. If we remove this tiny fraction of our economy and just look at GDP less inventories or the change in inventories, we come up with final sales. It too has a trend of about two and a half to two and three quarter percent. And here you can see we should be a little bit more concerned about growth because growth over here is just barely over 1%, well less than the trend of 2.5% to quarter percent That's why it really hasn't felt all that good. So in addition to that, when we talk about going forward, and I'll give you a little heads up, growth is anticipated to improve off of the growth rates that occurred last year. But more importantly, it's going to feel better. It's going to feel better because when you talk to businesses and you look at forecasts, the sense is is that the inventory story has pretty much come close to being over. You're not going to be able to think that this tiny fraction of the economy is going to contribute anywhere near the kind of rate that it has done over the past year and a half. So as we go forward, much more of that growth is going to turn up in terms of final sales. Another factor I'm not going to talk tremendously about, but government stimulus programs have probably peaked in terms of their contributions to growth and are going to probably act more as a drag, certainly from the federal standpoint, let alone from the state standpoint. Rick is probably going to talk a little bit more about some of the challenges that the uh, state and local governments face, but you can't imagine that we're looking at a growth engine coming out of these sectors. But still, with all this knowledge, the view is that growth will improve. I mentioned about the financial crisis. One way of kind of illustrating uh, what's going on here is to look at the Fed's balance sheet. I'll bookend the pre- my part of the presentation by starting off with the liability side. And you know, going back before the financial crisis of the fall of 08, our balance sheet was primarily on liabilities. It was probably made up of all those dollars that you have in your purses and wallets. Um, and that's what we owed. There is a tiny fraction here in red. You could probably hardly discern that. Well, as you know, when you make a deposit into a financial institution, they're required to set aside a certain portion of that, known as required reserves. Pretty much, that's what the red area is. there. Those are the reserves that banks have with us. Majority of that is required reserves. Now, they also have the option of keeping more money with us. We would call that excess reserves, reserves above and beyond the required amount. If we go forward, the required reserves, well, we haven't changed the required reserve rate. It would still represent a tiny fraction of the balance sheet. The surge that we see here in the red are all of the excess reserves. Now, we held 40 roundtables in the middle of last year in Chicago, Milwaukee, Detroit. Uh, and all around the country, bringing together small businesses, people from the real estate industries, uh, bankers, and other financial individuals, consumer groups, to try to figure out what's happening with regard to access to credit, especially for smaller businesses. Uh, And what we found was that it's a very complicated story. It's not as simple as you know, pointing a finger at one particular issue. Um, its issues were surrounding the, the evaluation of different assets, housing, commercial real estate, industrial businesses, um, and retail businesses. And it's, a, it's trying to figure out, you know, what allocation is within the portfolio of a bank. Am I too heavily weighted in one or the other? And more importantly, it's the outlook. It's the view from most individuals that growth is going to be positive, but not spectacular. And that makes a challenge in terms of making sure that you're making loans to the right businesses with the expectation that it's going to be repaid. In addition, on the demand side, uh, many of the businesses that have come out of this uh, deep recession are ones that were probably more financially savvy, maybe a little bit less debt heavy. Maybe it's already a predilection not to take on a lot of loans. There's also tremendous slack out there for, for capacity at this point. Many businesses are like, why would I want to add more capacity when I have all of this excess that I still need to absorb and they're waiting for activity to move higher. So from both supply as well as demand, uh, we're seeing that these balance sheets remain, uh, these excess reserves remain quite elevated. But this is also a positive going forward. Because when risk tolerance improves, when the view of the economy improves, financial institutions will not have to do a lot of capital raising to be able to make these loans. They have them on the books. So that's a positive, let alone what is also true about the profit side of of businesses also being very flush. Maybe many of those companies don't need to be accessing credit to, to a degree. The other side is that you know, the consumer makes up two-thirds of our, of, of our GDP. You know, so we need to understand the consumer, because if you mess up even a little bit, its size really weighs very heavily in the forecast. And the consumer has gotten this new religion with regard to savings. Uh, saving rates have moved up quite substantially, as you can see. Um, and this is ultimately a very good thing for an economy. Just last night at my uh, MBA class at the poll, I was sharing the fact that with more savings, there's more money available. Interest rates will therefore tend to be lower than they otherwise would be, fostering larger amount of investment, building up our capital stock, leading to productivity improvements, ultimately leading to higher standards of living. That's how we improve standards of living in the economy is through productivity improvements, efficiencies. However, that takes time. That's a long-run story. We also know that since the consumer represents two-thirds of our economy, and if that consumer is saving more, it means that they are spending less. That's referred to as the paradox of thrift, how a higher savings rate is both good and bad for an economy. It's a matter of timing. Good in the long run, not so good in the short run. Now, question is, and this is kind of the $64 trillion question, which is roughly what the wealth of the United States is, will these higher saving rates persist going forward? And I think you have to look at why people save, and not that we endorse any particular product, but I think it's helpful to think about a commercial like from ING, where they kind of illustrate that everybody has a number that they are trying to achieve. How was that number achieved in the past? People would make the largest purchase that they would make in their lives, and they would buy a home. They would make monthly payments. And after some period of time, uh, they would invite family and friends over. They would have a barbecue, serve good drinks, good eats. And at the end of the evening, they would take that piece of paper that represented the mortgage and throw it into the barbecue, burn it up, and you'd have this mortgage-burning ceremony. And the family would own this home free and clear, probably a larger home than a couple nearing retirement would need, and they could either downsize, sell the home, move to a smaller place, move to a less expensive part of the country, uh, or take a reverse mortgage, but they would be able to access the, the built-up equity in there. And that was always a safe way of, of approaching your number, because as we all know, home prices in the United States never fall. Right? <laughs> we all heard that, and your real estate agent was not lying to you. Uh, Because between uh, World War II and, and up until the last couple of years, home prices, even in the worst of times, always tended to go higher, at least in nominal terms. But, of course, that rule has been broken, with home prices down anywhere from... 25% 25% as measured by the National Association of Realtors data, 35% if you look at a Case-Shiller type of index, uh, they're down substantially. And the perception that home prices uh, can never fall, I think that's going to be with us uh, for a long time. That, that, that's not true, that home prices are going to go up and possibly down uh, even into the future. So, curiously, how many of you believe that we're going to be looking at a tennis ball type of recovery here, that with housing prices having crashed down by 25 percent, are going to pop up quite substantially, let's say over the next five years. How many of you think home prices are going to rise substantially over the next five years? How many people in the room, R.J.? 100 140. Dan? 140? I, is there a single hand in the room? I don't see a single hand in the room going up. So that, tells me that people are thinking about their home less as an investment, and interestingly enough, more as a place to live. That's a very different way of viewing one's home. It also tells me that there's not going to be an overconsumption of housing, which is what what had been happening during uh, this this, 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 this large uh, increase that we had seen in the last decade. But it also tells me that in order to reach their number, people are not very optimistic that home appreciation and the built-up buildup of equity is going to get them to that number. All right, fine. Let's look at the second major item that people would accumulate to try to get that number. Investing in the stock market. An ever-increasing share of the American population has been doing that since the 1980s. Um, and when you look at the 10% returns that, are, that we typically get in the stock market, um, you know, where's, where, where is that? Well, of course, we've been on this great bull market run. Um, uh, you watch CNBC, Fox Business News, and you see all these people talking about, you know, the spectacular gains. Well, the restaurants I'm going to, I'm not seeing too many champagne corks being popped in celebration of this bull market. Uh, because unless you put your money in the market in March of 2009, uh, you're still well below the peaks that were back in 2007, let alone the results of the past 13 years where the market has gone nowhere fast, basically zero gains over a 13-year period. So similarly, how many of you think that the stock market are going to show spectacular gains or substantial gains over the next five years? You guys are dismal. You're the most dismal group <laughs> I've had. I see, I see kind of one hand going, maybe, uh, maybe it goes up. Uh, yeah. Um, so the point of that is that people are probably not going to be thinking about the equity markets as, a, as achieving that number. Now, we're an aging population. We all know how many people are, are turning 60 every single minute in this country. They're getting close to a time period where they would like to retire. How do they get to that number? Well, uh, they do it the old-fashioned way. They save out of income. And that is one reason why a number of different surveys of economists suggest that these higher saving rates will persist over the next five years. Some even saying it could go higher than where we are. So that's going to be a bit of a challenge on on, on on the economy's growth. Now, of course, saving this money, what do you do with it? You're probably not going to invest in your home. If you you don't think the stock market's going to be a great performer over the next five years, you're probably not putting a lot there. And what are CD rates yielding, right? You're not going to reach your number that way. But that's your asset side. Uh, Equally, of course, you have your liability side. And you look at, uh, you know, credit card debt. How much does credit card interest rates cost us, especially now after some of the changes that have been put in place? You know, people could be facing a 15% interest rate. So if they take that $2,000 that they're saving and pay off the credit card, that's as if they're paying themselves 15%. Uh, And when we look at the debt-to-income ratio, uh, debt service payments to income, uh, it has plunged. And we are back to levels last seen over 10 years ago. So this is, again, a positive for the economy because... When consumers become more positive about the outlook and they begin to think about spending money maybe a little bit faster pace, their financial house is going to be in a much better position having gone through this reduction that when it, they'll be able to deal with a bit more debt as we move forward. Um, so again, some, some more positives. So what is the outlook for the economy's growth? Well, according to the latest Blue Chip Forecasting Group, uh, just over 50 forecasters, uh, they're looking at growth this year of 3.3%, faster than the 2.8% that is forecast. We still don't have fourth quarter data yet. We'll get that at the end of the month. And then 3.2% for next year. Uh, Just to share with you, our Fed President, Charles Evans, is a bit more optimistic. He thinks a number closer to 4% is possible this year. Uh, but e- e- even with these numbers, the 3.3% is going to feel a lot better, much better than the 2.8% just because, again, of what's driving that growth. With regards to the labor markets, you know, at least we've added jobs over the past year. Um, it was kind of upsy-downsy because of the decennial census that was taking place. If we look at the private sector, uh, we added about 1.4 million jobs and that's decent. But keep in mind, we lost 8.4 million. But also keep in mind that we're on a treadmill. We don't have zero population growth or zero workforce growth. We're adding workers each and every day. And, the, and the, uh, our estimates are that we need to add roughly about 100,000 workers each month in order just to keep the unemployment rate stable. So the fact that we added about 1.4 million, well, we should be adding about 1.2 million just to keep things stable. So we did slightly better than that, not spectacularly more. So when we look at a measurement like the unemployment rate, it has only edged lower over the past year. Um, And that 9.4 percent uh, rate drop in uh, December, probably statistical aberration and wouldn't surprise me to see that uh, move a bit higher. With regard to the region, though, there has been more impressive improvements. And I'll talk about the manufacturing sector being a vital part of this story. But you can see that uh, Michigan, who at that point in time had the worst unemployment rate in the country, now is only tied for second place with California. Uh, And they went from having over 14% to now they're at 12.4%. A relative improvement, that is quite impressive, especially when you see the fact that in the United States it has, incre- it has decreased by only a few tenths of a percent. This is a much more impressive impo- improvement. You could see in Illinois as well it's come down, uh, Wisconsin, and so forth. In fact, when we look at the five states that make up the Chicago districts, that's uh, uh, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Iowa, uh, for the first time In November of last year, for the first time since December of 2002, our unemployment rates actually matched that of the nation. Over that interim period, we were higher each and every month. So this is good news. We've gone from being pretty horrible to being as bad as the rest of the country. (laughs) So it's all relative position thing. And Rick's going to talk about our tax rates in a similar vein here, I'm sure. Um, With regard to unemployment insurance, we have seen this move down. So this, again, is another positive, suggesting that labor markets are beginning to ease up. And, in fact, at a, at a very recent uh, roundtable for manufacturing that I held in early January, I got the sense there was a lot more optimism than I actually expected, and a lot more sense from some of the people there that, they're, that they are now pulling the trigger, not ready to pull a trigger. They're pulling the trigger with, with regard to hiring. So I remain optimistic about some improved... Hiring as we go forward. But nonetheless, uh, the forecast from Blue Chip is for unemployment rates to remain awfully high. Uh, when you're growing the economy at trend, unemployment rates remain stable. Well, we're growing the economy according to Blue Chip slightly better than trend by about half a percentage point or three quarters of a percentage point. But again, that's still not spectacularly higher, so you only marginally begin to bring down the unemployment rate. So even by the end of next year, 2012, we're looking at unemployment rates that, that are north of 8%. That's really unacceptable uh, for the United States to have unemployment rates that, that high, especially when if you, if you think there's something you can do to materially affect that, and I'll talk about that with regard to our policy as we talk about inflation. So when we look at inflation, it's been a story that has been quite volatile, moving high, going into deflation during the recession, coming back up as oil prices move back up higher. And, and more recently, uh, they've been edging lower, uh, in large part moving around by these energy prices. Now, energy prices are up around the $90 per barrel. Let me just talk briefly about that. Um, so and we see gasoline prices at, at $3 and higher now. Um, question is, how much is that going to affect us? You know, it's probably going to uh, affect growth to some degree, but I don't think we're anywhere near the kind of levels that is, is risking us to tip into another recession. Um, and, and to illustrate that, here's the most recent data through November uh, with regard to consumer spending on energy goods and services. So this is more than just filling up your vehicles with gasoline, it's paying your electric bill, your gas bill for your house, it's anything directly related to energy and spending on that is around five and a half cents out of every dollar. In fact when we look at this from a longer term perspective over the last 50 years, you can see that it averages about 6.4 cents of every dollar. So in fact, with the increases that we've seen in December and into January, it's probably going to move this number up, but we'll probably get something closer to that long run average. And in that long run average period, that was existing through most of the time our economy is expanding, not retracting. So uh, again, we're not going to like paying for that, but again, I don't think it's the kind of level that we need to start worrying about uh, recessionary issues. But because of all the slack in the economy, the labor markets being uh, as poor as they are. You can't imagine there are too many stories about, you know, not really would sound there, but <laughs> there you go. Somebody knocking on uh, the boss's door and saying, hey, I haven't gotten an increase in the last couple of years. You either give me an increase of 10% or I'm out the door. Right. What's the boss likely to say? What is she likely to say? Don't, like the hey, you know, you're, you know, don't the door hit you on the way out. I've got four people that want your job, and they're willing to work for less than I'm paying you. Right? With that kind of, of, of story that seems to permeate both the employer as well as the employee, you can't imagine there's going to be tremendous wage pressure. And that's something I want you to keep in mind and, uh, as we go as we go forward in this recovery. You know, For those of you who have been fortunate enough to keep your jobs, because we know that there has been over 8 million people who have been severely impacted by, by being uh, removed out of their jobs. Keep in mind that we all pay the penalty for such slack labor markets. Trust me, the story I just told would not be laughed at, would not be believed if we, if we had the unemployment rate much closer to its natural rate. It's because of the slack in the market that all of us are looking at wage increases that are going to be much more restrained than they otherwise would be, and hence real incomes are not going to rise as rapidly as they otherwise would be. This is the price that the labor side pays for such slack in, in the labor market. In addition to that, as we'll see, even the very strongly recovering manufacturing sector still has tremendous excess space available to take on business. So they, too, are being very competitive with the pricing of of their products, as well as the uh, seeking orders and and new opportunities by keeping prices very restrained. So because of all of this slack in the economy, uh, we are seeing disinflation that has been taking place. In fact, in um, October, the CPI uh, on the, this is the underlying rate of inflation, so it removes food and energy we call a core rate of inflation. This is for the PCE. But the core CPI, it reached a level that had not been experienced since the series began back in 1959. So uh, we are looking at extremely weak pricing pressure uh, for the overall economy. This is in, in light of the fact that the Fed has been extremely aggressive. That, remember that, that balance sheet I showed you at the beginning. We took our balance sheet from $800 billion, nearly tripling it to $2.2 trillion. And yet, the inflation rates continue to move lower. One could imagine that if the Fed wasn't as aggressive, we would be facing deflation at this point. And not to say that we're out of the woods with regard to worrying about uh, deflation in the economy. The consensus view from Blue Chip is that uh, as the economy growth improves, we're going to see some upward pressure with regard to uh, prices uh, moving from a 1.1 percent expected for last year up to 1.8 percent this year and 2 percent next year. This includes both food and energy prices its total uh, CPI that's being forecast there. So let's talk about the manufacturing sector. You know, uh, again we're not talking about just moderate growth here. They are experiencing really significant, strong growth Uh, over the past 17 months, beginning in July of 2009, manufacturing output has risen at an annualized rate just shy of of 8%. Uh, The very sharp decline of over 17% of output, nearly 54% of that has been recovered. Tomorrow morning at 8.15, we'll get the December reading for industrial production. Given the readings that we're seeing from the purchasing managers' reports, I remain hopeful that that will be another strong report. And manufacturing is on its way to reaching all-time record level highs, which was the case in December of 2007. Prior to the downturn, we were producing more in manufacturing than ever. And in terms of a V-shaped recovery, it doesn't get much more V-shaped than what you're seeing with regard to capacity utilization. It's come back very nicely. After reaching depths last seen in the 1930s, yet at the same time we think of about 79 to 80 percent, so right around here, as being full utilization. Even with the expectation of continued growth this year, probably by the end of the year we'll still be shy of reaching full utilization. So throughout this year we'll continue to have slack in the manufacturing sector. With regard to industries and manufacturing, there wasn't a single one that avoided uh the, the downturn, some more than others. The two that were most severely impacted was, not surprisingly, uh, motor vehicles with the uh, bankruptcy of GM and Chrysler uh, and the planned closings that were taking place in, in during this time period, and then primary metals, i.e. steel, not surprisingly as well, given that they go hand-in-hand hand with each other. Those two industries are extremely important to the Midwest economy. When you think about the 13% of the population of the country that resides in our district, we produce nearly 30% of all the vehicles out there. We produce uh, over 30% of the steel. Uh, We produce uh, the lion's share of heavy machinery. So these are very important industries to the Midwest. But in terms of the recovery period since July of 2009, we are looking at growth that has been spectacular And in particular, we do have a tennis ball recovery. The two sectors that fell the furthest are the ones that are recovering the fastest, uh, the automotive sector as well as the primary metals sector. And you can see that in the Midwest, our manufacturing index, having been hit harder during the recession, has been outperforming the nation over the past year, and hence those relative improvements on the unemployment rates. Uh, It's really, in large part, being driven by the manufacturing sector. And here are those purchasing managers' indexes. uh, uh, In red is the nation, green is Milwaukee, and blue is Chicago. And you can see that uh, both of our regional indexes really surged in December. Um, And even the national index edged higher. Uh, All very, very good readings for the sector. So what is the outlook? It's expected to have risen by 5.6%. Again, tomorrow we'll get that final reading uh, of what it looks like. Um, And then for this year, 4.3% growth. Next year, 3.8% growth. Both this year and next year, growth that exceeds the growth of the overall economy. So again, this industry remains a key driver of growth going forward, although probably playing less of a role in terms of the share of, of contribution. Let's look at something that, uh, again, very important to the Midwest economy, the auto industry. Uh, December sales came in pretty decently, uh, 12 and a half. I never thought, in the, uh, since I've been working at the Fed, especially over the last 15, 20 years, that I would ever say that 12 and a half million units is a, is a very decent number for, for the industry. Um, because this is an industry, as you can see, that between 1999 and 2007 was selling more than 16 million units uh, in those years and losing money in those years. They're making money at these levels. Uh, The restructuring, the ability of properly reducing their footprint of production to match the market share, in particular of the Detroit Three, has made those industries, those companies, profitable at a much lower level. Uh, They've estimated that around 10 to 11 million units is all they need to have to be profitable because of the flexibility they now enjoy. Um, That is certainly going to suggest that the industry is going to be far more restrained in terms of pushing product. Um, And, you know, if you think about manufacturing, and some of you might have walked in the room thinking that uh, view that, you know, we don't make anything any longer in the United States. Let me just spend a minute on that. Um, You know, back in the late 90s, uh, the Detroit 3 had about 70% market share. And then during the past decade, uh, they got walloped. Uh, and their market share fell to below 50%, where it has been now for the last couple of years. So for the last couple of years, we have more vehicles with those funny sounding names uh, than Ford, GM, and Chrysler uh, being sold. Uh, and people read the news about uh, how many auto workers are losing their jobs, all the plant closings, and they have this, and the market share losses, and they have this view that, okay, well, there goes U.S. auto manufacturing, and and therefore, of course, there goes uh, manufacturing in the U.S., and even in this sector, that is absolutely not the story. Uh, If we go back to 1980, you could see that just over 70% of our market was comprised of Uh, GM and Ford and Chrysler, the big three as we called them back then, because they controlled that large share of the market. We call that an oligopoly. Not so good for choice, quality, or pricing of the product. Uh, We did have one nameplate manufacturer here in red. That's a foreign nameplate manufacturer who's producing in the United States. And that was Volkswagen, who had a plant in Pennsylvania and not a very successful one. In fact, their market share kind of dwindled down almost to zero uh, in the, in the mid-80s. And, in fact, they wound up closing that plant in the late 80s. Uh, but then we began to see an ever-increasing pers- participation by Toyota, Honda, Nissan, Mitsubishi, uh, the Europeans, the Koreans coming in. And so if we look at today, half of the vehicles with those funny-sounding names are made here in the U.S., And if we include that number of vehicles that are made here in the US to the Detroit 3 share, so we can see that as of the fourth quarter of last year, over 70% of the vehicles that are sold here are made here. Little change from what it was 30 years ago, with the exception that today, rather than having four manufacturers, we have 13 different nameplate manufacturers producing much better for the consumer. And in fact, talking about pricing, uh, new vehicle prices have fallen by four-tenths of a percent each and every year over the past 10 years. That means that a a person who hasn't seen much of an income growth say over 10 years, and there are groups in our society where that's been the case, now no real increase, they can buy a vehicle for 4% less today than what existed back in... Uh, the late 19, or back in 2000, and that's certainly a benefit to them. Um, and uh, in terms of the type of products, you know, you will find that many of the products that are produced by the new domestics actually have higher U.S. content, U.S. and Canadian content than the Detroit Three counterpart. Uh, for example, the Ford Mustang has about 70 percent U.S. and Canadian content. Uh, the Toyota Sienna uh, has 85 percent. US and Canadian content made in Indiana. Uh, I just went shopping with a buddy. He bought uh, a Lincoln MKZ, right? hybrid, very nice car. Um, What do you think the US and Canadian content in this Ford Lincoln? Whatever number you think, cut it in half. Anybody want to take a guess? 50? No, too high. 30, too high. 20 percent, It's assembled in Mexico. It's using, I can't recall whether it's either the engine or the transmission, that's American. The other part, the other key component is Japanese. Uh, but again, this is what's making it very complicated. You cannot look at the badge of the product and make a, decla- a declaration that, oh, that's American, that's foreign. And in, in fact, that's part of globalization. And globalization is really going to benefit the US, because in my view, globalization means today being closer to your customer. And as we become more and more efficient in this country and labor share makes up a small and smaller part of the cost of a product, who cares if you're going to save a little bit on 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 the wages or even quite a bit on the wages when it only represents that share of the product? Things like the cost of logistics, Currency issues tend to dominate. That is in no small part of the reason why in 2011, we're going to have 14 different nameplate manufacturers. Volkswagen introduced their new vehicle at the Detroit Auto Show that's going to be manufactured in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So Volkswagen has come back to the US. And some of you are aware that the Italians have announced an $800 million investment in Belvedere to basically turn that facility, that Chrysler facility, into a state-of-the-art, world-class facility. Um, So money continues to be invested in the U.S. for future production of goods. The outlook for the vehicle sales is for moderate improvement, uh, so kind of following the path of relatively moderate growth for for consumer, about 13 million units this year, uh, about 13.8 next year, basically coming close to reaching the replacement level. Um, because last couple of years we were below that. Mm -hmm. Housing industry, I'm going to move through this real quick. I think at best we can say is the housing sector has bottomed. We're not looking at any kind of spectacular growth. I think the question I asked about pricing kind of suggests that from you. Um, When you look at the fact that mortgage rates remain still a real bargain at less than 5%, the fact that prices appear to have stabilized to a high degree uh, after having fallen by that 25% rate, uh, taking all of that into account, the low mortgage rate, the uh, low price of the home, the fact that incomes have held in there, affordability is incredibly good. And yet this market can't seem to get out of its way and start to absorb some of this excess capacity. Um, and uh, you know, and you okay, with this kind of affordability, you think, okay, maybe we got some hope going forward. But when you ask people, are you going to buy homes over the next six months? The answer is, uh uh-uh. And I just wonder if it's a matter of, we need to see some price appreciation in homes before people begin to realize that homes have finally hit bottom. I think people are scared about buying something and seeing its value go down even further i also think that the again the lousy labor market isn't helping the situation Um, and the industry is doing a pretty good job all in all restraining the new inventory of homes coming into the market we think of the long run being about 1.5 million Uh, we're operating right now at well below those levels uh, of, of production and keep in mind about 300,000 of these starts are needed just to replace all, the new, all of the homes that get fires, that have flood damage, that get destroyed by other natural disasters, or that just get old and have to be torn down. It's about, estimated to be about 300,000. So we're barely, over the last couple of years, operating above those replacement levels. And we continue to add households. Population growth is still quite positive. Um, So uh, on the trade side, um, you know, net exports had improved. It kind of edged lower, although this morning's numbers, uh, monthly numbers, uh, we're we're likely to see actually a pretty decent number when GDP comes out uh, at the end of the month with regard to some improvement on on the trade side. Um, The dollar remains quite low, and that certainly is making our goods in the U.S. relatively more or less expensive to foreigners, and imports being relatively more expensive. So export growth uh, for quite a while has actually exceeded import growth. Uh, It flip-flopped in the third quarter, Uh, but again, I suspect that we're going to see this come back into a more balanced position uh, when the fourth quarter data comes out. And the blue chip group sees basically not much of an impact uh, with regard to the Uh, trade deficit over the next couple of years, remaining pretty stable uh, all in all. Last couple of points is just the financial side. I talked about the small business at the beginning. Here's a chart that kind of reflects activity for the large borrowers, the big corporate side. Uh, Difference between the credit spread for the corporate AAA versus the junk bond side, the high yield side. Um, And you can see the improvement that happened after the uh, financial crisis. this year or this past year, uh, here's Greece. So, did Greece affect our markets? Yes. Did it materially materially affect it? Not really. Uh, and you can even see a little bit of Ireland, moved it up fractionally. But pretty much everything has been said. You know, they'll probably deal with it. And and those rates remain extremely attractive. Certainly, from our contacts that we have spoken with, we have not heard any of the major corporations complaining about financial access for, for their bonds or, or other uh, issues. Um, and then with regard to Fed policy, you know, pedal to the metal. Uh, you know, we hit the, what's called the liquidity trap back in uh, 2008. We brought interest rates down to 0 to 25 basis points. Um, you know, liquidity trap is the fact that you know, you would actually like to send them even lower. You'd like to go negative. In fact, the Taylor rule Uh, from economist uh, John Taylor, suggested that the Fed should have been running about a minus four, minus five percent with regard to its policy tool. And we did, in fact, try to think how we could possibly do that, and we couldn't come up with at least a legal way of of actually doing it. Um, So, uh, but that didn't stop the Fed from doing traditional monetary policy, which, you know, Anybody who took a course from Professor Friedman, the answer always was, any question that he asked was, increase the money supply. And that's basically what we did. Um, And so we initially, during the crisis, had a whole bunch of special lending programs. During the financial crisis, the Fed dealt with the crisis the way it's supposed to in any crisis, lender of last resort. And we lent to a whole bunch of, of entities. Those special programs have now come to be representing a much smaller dollar level and share of the Fed balance sheet. The large increase here has been our purchase programs, uh, QE1, if you wish. We call it the Large-Scale Asset Purchase Program, LSAP. um, and That initially was buying mortgage-backed securities. Many of those are running off our accounts now. We bought a one and a quarter trillion dollars. We're losing about $50 billion each month from refinance activities, as well as just the, the, some of them just, you know, uh, ending their term. Uh, but in addition to replacing the runoff with additional treasury securities, uh, the Fed in November announced so, uh, the new LSAP program, QE2, as the market has dubbed it, which is purchasing $75 billion worth of medium term treasury securities uh, between November and middle of this year for, for this total of $600 billion, about $75 billion each month. So our objective here is to drive medium term interest rates down even lower. We are trying to tell uh, the players in the economy that the pendulum is swung too far. It has gone from being real risk takers to really being risk averse, and we're asking uh, through our actions for both lenders as well as borrowers to really give some serious thought to taking on loans, making loans, and, and trying to uh, once again revive the lending side, the financial side of the economy. So, uh, in sum, again, all in all looking at a decent year, uh, employment is going to uh, improve moderately, edging unemployment rates lower, and, and, but uh, Uh, We think that we could be as aggressive as we are being with regard to our policy because of all the slack in the economy, inflation remaining contained, and manufacturing, very important to the Midwest economy, uh, is going to again have a couple of decent years ahead. Thank you.
2: Thanks, everybody. Thanks for inviting us back again. Um, I I do have to say I chuckled when I uh, saw the original announcement for this program. It said that, you know, join our our new tradition every year of having two economists talk you to death during the first month of January. So I, I don't know whether this is a good tradition or it's a, just a tradition that maybe masochists would like, but um, anyway, it, it is your tradition. So we, we do appreciate you inviting us back. Um, I, I do want to remind you of the, uh, the old saying that a person becomes an economist when they realize they don't have quite enough personality to be either an accountant or an actuary, all right? <laughs> uh, so that, that being said, um, what I'd like to do is put what Bill talked about in the context of Chicago and Illinois' performance. So I think Bill did a really good job of describing sort of the macroeconomic conditions that the US is facing. And what I want to do is give you some context for how does that play out within more our local economy. So if you look at things right now, a common theme for both Illinois and Chicago Um, Was is we underperformed the U.S. both during the recession and through most of the time coming out of the recession. Now recently we've seen more convergence in terms of economic activity both in Chicago and in Illinois and that's mostly been in the last several months. Um, And that has been because exactly what Bill had talked about, which is the overwhelming role of manufacturing within this region and the the effect it's had on sort of rebuilding the Midwest economy. Um, So one of the things that's really important to always consider is the fact that the Midwest, based on a lot of research that people have done, has one of the most interconnected economies. So if you look at the trading patterns within the region, we trade very heavily with each other. Um, So as the region tends to decline, we tend to decline with it. And that's always going to be an issue for us both in Illinois and in Chicago. Um, So that's a really big point. Um, One of the things that is probably the biggest issue that we're facing right now is our public finance sector. Um, Obviously, there's been a lot of news coming out the last several days with Illinois' significant tax increase, but most of the other states within the region are also facing similar sort of major fiscal headwinds at this point. Um, Wisconsin really is in essentially the same shape as uh, Illinois is at this point. Um, Within our district, only Indiana and Iowa are actually in fairly prudent fiscal condition at this point. So how that plays out is going to have a real effect at least in the next year or next two years. One of the things that we have, particularly in Illinois and Chicago, is we have lots of terrific assets. Um, But the issue is, is are we leveraging them effectively? Um, So the idea is, is do we actually figure out a way that we can take advantage of the things that have been historical advantages for our region? And can we have a strategy that actually makes them sort of more productive than they've been over the recent time? Because there's some evidence that we don't necessarily get as much out of some of these assets as maybe we'd like to. Um, for Chicago, there's a particularly specific a- a- um, issue, which is replacing the mayor, all right? Um, you know, one of the things that Chicago has always had is there was a, a wonderful piece that The Economist did about three, four years ago, and it was on Chicago, and the headline of it was, Chicago, a success story. Well, one of the elements that they said made Chicago a success story was the fact that Mayor Daley had been in office for so long. And what they suggested this is that this essentially gave us the ability to have a benign despot who essentially was responsible for charting and having a vision for the city's growth and development. And they also suggested that other large cities that have benefited from this sort of benign despot model of mayors have also done well. Bloomberg in New York and Giuliani before that. Um, So the issue is, is the new mayor going to have the same sort of authority, or is there going to be fractions coming out of this? We also have a, a system that's been set up largely around sort of, Um, having access to the mayor is being sort of the focal point for getting things done in Chicago. So that's also going to be an issue. So that introduces some uncertainty that Chicago is going to have to deal with. So turning to Illinois, Um, this is the, the same figure that Bill showed earlier, except it's not updated to show you Illinois' downturn to converge essentially with the U.S. average for unemployment. But what you can see is Illinois is interesting because it really didn't perform very well during this recession, even though our economy essentially mirrors the U.S. average. So if you took the shares of where we get economic growth from and economic activity in Illinois, they're essentially exactly the same as the U.S. So you would assume that we perform at least at the U.S. average. And the fact that we underperformed throughout this period of time, again, suggests... This overhang of being linked to the Midwest economy has sort of dragged Illinois and Chicago's performance down um, over this period of time. But the good news is, again, the sort of Midwest dynamic has changed recently. The upturn in manufacturing has allowed Illinois to show so, uh, significant improvement over the last um, quarter of last year. Um, if you look at the Chicago economy relative to the rest of the state, As you can see, Illinois is really a case of a a tale of two economies. Um, So what Chicago specializes is in finance, business services, professional services, all those things. The rest of Illinois concentrates mostly in farming, uh, manufacturing, mining, other sorts of things. So these are shares of the economy. You can see how different Chicago is relative to the rest of Illinois. So it's two different economies in terms of the way it performs over time. However, during this recession, as you can see, all, almost every metropolitan area within Illinois did quite poorly. Um, Chicago actually, as you can see, even though it doesn't have this manufacturing concentration, actually did worse than areas like Kankakee, which are thought of far more as being heavy manufacturing places. As you can see, the worst performer was Rockford by far. Um, but as you can see, nobody did well during this um, particular recession. It was a a situation of decline regardless of what the structure of your local economy was. If you look at, though, over a longer period of time, what it suggests is for at least Illinois' uh, metropolitan areas, the faster they've moved away from manufacturing, sort of the better they've done over the longer term. So as you can see, this is the percent growth in non-farm employment against the percentage of manufacturing jobs in the area, Um, again, over this period of 1990 versus 1990 to 2009. As you can see, Decatur and Rockford, which have the highest percentage of manufacturing jobs, had the smallest growth in terms of their employment base, where places that had very little, like Bloomington, which has gone heavy services at this point, had much more significant growth. Um, so the, the story has been that sort of places that have sort of moved away from manufacturing have tended to grow faster, at least in terms of employment over this period of time. Um, turning to Chicago, um, the specific problems for Chicago, again, start with city finances. Um, we're in a situation right now where the city is running out of sort of options for how to raise revenues. Um, we've essentially sold off everything that we can. and At this point, essentially, we've already spent all of that, all right? So... The money that came from the parking meter lease um, essentially was supposed to last 20 years. Well, it's essentially been spent. Um, Same for the Skyway. Um, We could sell off Midway or O'Hare at this point, Um, but we're running out of things to sell, and it's hard to suggest how we're gonna get a lot of organic growth in the underlying tax base, and that's gonna be a real challenge for um, whoever the next mayor is. Um, Like most places, um, all of Chicago's economy declined during this period of time. But in particular, it was also sectors of the economy that normally don't decline had a really rough time. Um, So we think of finance, um, it's obviously being a financially-led recession. um, Took it on the chin during this one. Um, But we even had things like education, health services, retail sales, things like that. All did pretty poorly over this period of time and are only starting to recover right now. Um, The big issue for Chicago Um, And this was noticed before this, is is did we kind of lose our mojo going into this particular period of time? Um, You know, we went from sort of the heady days of the Olympic bid um, to where we were sort of on top of the world to then we didn't get the Olympic bid. Um, Oprah soon announced after that that she was leaving, closing up shop and was going to head out of Chicago. Mayor announces he's going to retire all of a sudden, all these things that sort of made Chicago seem like kind of a hot spot to be, um, all of a sudden were sort of called into question. So the issue is of we sort of lost some of our momentum at this point in time. Um, the conundrum, again, for Chicago, and I've raised this every year that I've brought here, is Chicago's position as a metropolitan area, which is, are we the capital of the Midwest or are we truly a global city at this point? Um, the more that we're capital of the Midwest, obviously, the more we're tied to the fate of what happens in Ohio and Indiana and Iowa and Michigan, and other places. Um, one of the things that Chicago has tried to do is, is to reach a sort of escape velocity where we're truly a global city, where our, our economic linkages are really outside of the region. Because as long as we're the capital of the Midwest, we're tied ourselves to a region that's declining. I mean, we're, we're going to be a smaller part of economic activity in the U.S. economy. You can all, already see that in the last. Um, census report, when it was announced how many congressional seats we're going to lose within this region, we're just simply a shrinking area. So part of Chicago's success is can it escape sort of the, uh, the Midwest? Can it become sort of a larger player in, the, in sort of the world and the U.S. economy? And I think there's a lot of reasons to believe it can, so I think there's some good news there. And finally, the good news is we're still really a talent magnet. Um, when you think of what an uh, economy needs to grow today, it's clearly high-skilled human capital. And Chicago does a really good job at attracting high-skilled human capital, particularly um, compared to other, other um, places in the region. Um, so if you look at the most recent numbers that were the monthly numbers for Chicago, what you can see is the declines for the most part, except for in construction, have really leveled off on a year-to-year basis. Um, we're at a point right now where we're um, down about 1.5% um, in terms of jobs for total um, private sector employment. Um, The losses, again, were pretty much across everywhere, you know, financial activities, business and professional services, areas where you wouldn't have expected to have seen losses in the past. Um, And so, again, that shows you just how broad-based this particular recession was, leisure and hospitality included in taking it really on the chin. Um, If you look at other indicators, again, you have this massive improvement in the unemployment rate. Um, Chicago goes from 10.3 to 9 uh, over the uh, year period, so, again, some... Um, Reason to be optimistic there. But if you look at overhang in real estate and commercial real estate, there's still some real problems in the market, obviously. Uh, 15% vacancy rate in downtown and about 24% in the suburban areas. And again, not a lot of sense that that's going to burn off anytime really fast. Um, If you look at specific areas of concern for Chicago, labor recovery and the housing market are the two I'm going to focus on. If you look at, again, the unemployment rate for Chicago, as you can see, it's the, um, it went higher than the US average throughout this period of time, headed into the recession, and peaked higher than the US. And if you look at change in jobs, Chicago's underperformed in terms of that. Um, so we haven't sort of matched the US in terms of our economic performance that way. Um, if you look at housing prices, um, Chicago definitely participated in the real estate bubble, if you look at it from this sort of perspective, um, the house prices. Um, Chicago is the blue line, as you can see, basically mirrors the U.S., except the decline's been even more severe. Um, So much worse than many of our sister cities within the region in terms of both the run-up in price and the decline in prices. Um, So Chicago was a participant in that. And we're recognizing that in foreclosures. So if you look at areas where there's heavy foreclosures, the ring right around Chicago is heavily represented as one of the areas with significant foreclosure activities. Um, the problem is, is that the growth engines of Chicago's economy also really fell on hard times during this period. So, if you look at financial service, financial insurance employment, as you can see, a very sharp decline in terms of employment levels um, over this period of time. Same thing in uh, in all of our sort of you know options and uh, and futures market exchange. Um, operations, again, declines that um, we still haven't recovered at this point. So that's going to be an issue for us in the future. And tourism and convention took it on the chin. So if you look at the uh, you know, activity at McCormick Place and other things, as you can see, a fairly dramatic decline in uh, tourism business within the region. Um, much like the last time, as is one of the things that Bill really pointed out is manufacturing has definitely been a boost right now. And so it's also been a boost locally within Chicago Metro. Because you can see the employment levels have essentially um, really snapped back very, very nicely, um, even within Chicago Metro. Um, similarly, that's spilled over to transportation and warehousing as a, as a uh, related field. And logistics is really important to Chicago's economy. So it's important that that's come back. Um, the longer term view for Chicago, though, is a little muddled. So This is an interesting way to think about um, urban growth within the region. So here's Chicago, OK? So this is real personal income growth versus employment growth over this period from 1969 to 2006. As you can see, Chicago actually wasn't as much of a winner during this period of time as we thought. So some of the sense that we were really sort of a boom economy um, was a little bit of maybe our own boosterism. Um, Chicago's really just sort sort of in the middle of the continuum. The places that really did well were like Minneapolis, all right? So they're the ones that are the, so the outsized winner during this period of time. And interestingly, Pittsburgh. Um, Pittsburgh didn't add employment, but it added a lot of income over this period of time, um, suggesting that they restructured themselves to a smarter but smaller economy during this period of time. But as you can see, Chicago sort of is a mixed bag. The only ones that are in the obvious sort of the worst position, Detroit, Cleveland, Buffalo, sort of represent the sort of the three stooges of this particular graph, Um, but, you know, they they represent the ones that were the clear clear losers during this period of time. Um, But you know, as World Business Chicago points out again, I mean, Chicago's got lots of these assets. I mean, I'll let you read what they are. I mean, we're a transportation hub. We clearly are very attractive in terms of bringing um, bright young people into the area. We've got lots of consumers within a two-day drive. It's a rich market in terms of that. Um, we have lots of amenities that are also very desirable. Um, things that are all in sort of any sort of urban economic literature right now are things that people cite as being important factors in, in having any sort of you know, city health measure. Um, and if you look at this, um, again, a way too busy graph, but Illinois is that little yellow box up there, the gold box. Um, this just shows you our ability to both produce and attract um, college graduates to our region. And what it shows is Illinois and Minnesota are the only two Midwestern states which are actually in the quadrant, which is we both are a high producer of college graduates and we're a high attractor of, high, of college graduates. All the other Midwestern states fall in this less desirable category in many cases of being a very high producer, but they lose their college graduates to other places. Um, and that's really a tribute to Chicago, its attractiveness as a place for, you know, well-educated people to want to move here. So, the final word, okay, so um, if you want to be really pessimistic, um, again, the the one factor I'd look most closely at is going to be the fiscal landscape facing both um, the city of Chicago and Illinois in general. Um, The state, one thing that should be recognized is the state has been running a long-term structural deficit for better than a decade at this point. Um, So any of the sort of problems that have been most recently in the news have been a long time in in the making. And we've essentially been piling up bills on sort of a completely unsustainable level um, for some period of time. Um, So it was clear that something needed to be done in response to the sort of unsustainable path we were on. Um, If you look at the issues that are really driving a lot of underneath this, it's it's mostly pension and other post-employment benefit um, costs. Um, Our pension funds are the worst funded in the United States at this point, depending on what measure you want to use. They're anywhere from 42 to 47% funded. Um, That simply is a a huge long-term liability um, for the state of Illinois. Um, The problem also is, is we've had a tendency to just sort of kick the problem down the road. Um, Rather than any sort of fundamental sort of structural reform to Illinois' um, underlying fiscal conditions, um, we've tried a series of band-aid approaches to try to sort of fix things, and at this point that hasn't necessarily improved our position that much. Um, And, you know, the the new tax increase is certainly going to help with the general operating side of the budget. It's not going to do that much, though, in terms of actually addressing the underlying structural problem that the state's facing. So to give you a sense of the magnitude of this, the new tax increase is estimated raising about $6.8 billion um, in in the current year. Um, You have to realize that we have unpaid bills right now of roughly $7 billion that the state is paying. So the new tax increase doesn't even cover our unpaid bills at this point. Um, So we're we're not going to be making a whole lot of progress in terms of paying down where our debt is right now. Um, so if you look at the um, current thing, and there, there was a couple of adjustments to this. Um, personal income tax obviously raises from 3 to 5% for a four-year period. And then it's scheduled to have two phases of declines. Whether or not those declines ever occur um, will be interesting to see. Um, same with the corporate income tax. Um, they will have the same sort of step-down process in terms of that. Um, there's an attempt to try to restrain spending Um, by capping general fund spending at 2% growth rate per year. However, you should realize that um, the general fund only represents about 55% of Illinois' total spending, Um, so it's not clear what's going to happen for those things that are outside the general fund, um, and whether or not there actually will be restraint in those areas. Um, The other thing is you should realize there's a 2% cap. Essentially, if you factor in increased debt service, um, which Illinois will be taking on, Uh, pension liabilities and Medicaid growth, that will more than exceed the 2%, all right? The growth just in those things will more than exceed a 2% increase in the budget. So um, that's going to mean there's going to have to be real cuts in the rest of the budget um, to keep that 2% cap in effect. And they've also put in a a sort of a penalty phase, which is if you actually exceed the 2% based on a report by the State Auditor General, um, then the tax rates automatically revert back to their original levels. Um, so the state loses the revenues if they exceed the two percent cap in any given year. Um, so that that's an effort to have more, um, you know, sort of a fiscal uh, um, discipline involved in it. Um, the other thing is, is that we're going to issue $4 billion more in pension bonds. With state's already issued $10 billion in pension bonds. This will allow us to make our pension contribution for the upcoming year. Um, but again, it shows you just how desperate things are because we can't make that contribution out of the general operating budget of, um, of Illinois at this point. Um, and again, there were a lot of elements that didn't pass, a dollar increase in the cigarette tax. Um, there was also a proposal to borrow $8.75 billion um, that was to pay off our backlog of um, bills, um, those things that we already owe people. Um, the irony is, is that a lot of the estimates suggested that we actually would have saved money by borrowing the $8.75 billion because the penalties and fees that the state is, in, is now racking up because they haven't made these payments um, would exceed what the, the debt co- cost would have been of issuing the bonds. Um, so, okay, so that's all the happy news. So, um, so, so how, how bad is it? Um, again, the deficit for this year is estimated between 11 and $14 billion, depending on who you talk to. Um, total indebtedness for Illinois is about 120 to 132 billion if you put in our uh, pension obligations um, into that. And that works out to about $25,000 per household, all right, um, is what Illinois is, is sort of in the hole for at this point. Um, again, the pension deficit alone is between 60 and 80 billion at this point. Um, and, you know, if things weren't happy enough. the... Uh, Federal stimulus money will run out pretty much in fiscal year 11. Um, so we'll be pretty much on our own in terms of uh, of those sorts of things. Um, so here's an interesting chart. This was in this week's New York Times. And this just gives you a sense of nearby states. Now, Illinois is the one that's way out here. So 40% projected deficit as a share of our general fund is where Illinois' debt is. Um, but as you can see, it wasn't a whole lot better in 2005. It was still... Covering about 9%. But you can see it's way outsized relative to many of our neighboring states, with the exception, really, of Wisconsin and Minnesota are the only ones that are sort of in the ballpark um, in terms of that. But, you know, clearly we're not sort of managing our fiscal house very well at this point. Um, Illinois' problems really aren't going unnoticed. Um, We have either the lowest or the second lowest bond rating right now in the U.S. Um, The expectation was this tax increase might at least stabilize our bond rating Um, if, you know, the hope would that maybe we'll have increased it a little or at least allow us to be able to go to market under, uh, you know, not draconian circumstances at this point. Um, Again, other uh, research groups have looked at Illinois have suggested that we're pretty much in the bottom uh, tier right now of states, both in terms of fiscal performance and in terms of our pension deficit. And the other issue too is the spillover to local governments is gonna be particularly harsh. Um, because you're going to assume that the state is going to increasingly reduce whatever contributions it's making to local budgets just at a time where municipalities are also starting to feel the bite from declining um, property tax uh, assessments that probably will eventually start to eat into what their property tax revenues will be. Um, So local spillover could be pretty severe in Illinois, um, and that's going to cause a lot of pressure on sort of you know, what sorts of measures reasonably can local communities do to sort of protect themselves in this kind of environment. So things are going to be pretty um, demanding for localities, too, in terms of that. Um, This was just one measure, and this was before all this stuff happened, but this gives you sort of what the market thinks of Illinois. So this was in, um, in June of last year, and this gives you what the credit default swap, um, price was for Illinois relative to some other pretty horrible credits out there as you can see Illinois was at 283 which was above Ireland all right in terms of the uh, the uh, cost of insuring Illinois debt was Considered worse than, a worse bet than insuring Ireland at that point um, So that you know certainly does not suggest that Illinois has done um, Certainly has some real issues involved in dealing with it um, so in summary um, if you look at Illinois and Chicago the good news is the last um, several months of last year showed the U.S. and Illinois and Chicago's performance starting to converge, so we no longer are doing worse than the nation as a whole. We're now sort of at least measuring with that. Um, clearly, our sort of interconnectedness with manufacturing within the region is probably going to be a strength um, in the upcoming year, but the big drag is going to be the fiscal situation. Um, we're in a position right now where, again, you know what was passed and signed um, is only the, sort of the opening round of having to sort of work out these fiscal problems. Um, it, it goes nowhere close to actually sort of um, solving the structural issues that Illinois is facing at this point. And until those things are worked out, they're going to introduce continue to introduce a lot of uncertainty um, into the local and into the state's economy. They're going to be hard to deal with. Um, so with that, thank you for your time and attention. And
0: Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, We've got time for a couple questions, I think, real briefly. Anybody? Or none.
2: Or not. Thank you. I guess it was uh, was very concise, very clear. Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) Please fill out your surveys. We'd appreciate your feedback, and uh, we'll see you next month.